Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 231. I'm Douglas Wilson, and I am glad you decided to join us. So, podcast episode 231. I want to begin by talking a little bit about uh, Ukraine and Psalm 137. As it uh, happens, we're about a month into the war. As as I'm recording this, we're about a month into the war. The uh, war is going poorly for the Russians. Uh, it didn't happen. Uh, it didn't. It was not over and done as quickly as I s- suspect they thought it was going to be. And the Ukrainians are fighting far more effectively uh, than anybody thought. And as I have commented on my blog about the war in Ukraine, and my sympathies are entirely with Ukraine and not with Russia. This has provoked a number of comments from. People in our circles pushing back, and and I found that um, although international sentiment, including the sentiment of many Christians in the West, is pro-Ukraine, there are a sizable number of Christians, conservative Christians, who are uh, either uh, rooting for Putin or yeah, butting for Putin, yeah, but you have to understand that it's complicated, or uh, want to find out more, and 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 there has been. A good deal of debate about the whole thing. In other words, the war is debated, and my uh, pro-Ukrainian stance has been challenged, and so on. And um, I wanted to take just one slice of this discussion, and I understand that this is Eastern European politics, uh, geopolitics, and consequently, it is enormously complicated, uh, and it's the kind of complication that runs back centuries. So I'm, I know that I'm just dealing with a small uh, piece of this, but I, I think it's worth, I think this small piece is worth commenting on. Also, as it happens, this coming Lord's Day, I'm, I'm going to be preaching on Psalm 137 um, by the rivers of Babylon. Uh, so this is a psalm about the exile of the Jews in Babylon, lamenting Zion, lamenting, the, uh, weeping over their memories of uh, Zion. And the the psalm ends with a like a a savage wish. Happy is the man who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So uh, the Babylonians were sort of taunting the Israelite exiles, saying, "Sing us a happy song of Zion," uh, which they refused to do, and and they're they're lamenting their losses, right now. And I put the that basic setup over against what I've heard Christians saying uh, on the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war. Now, I have a, this is a, I suppose you could call this full disclosure. I've got a number of friends in uh, Ukraine. It's not, it's not that I have um, no friends in Russia, but I have few, a lot, a lot fewer. And uh, I've got a number of contacts and uh, friendships in Ukraine or uh, pro-Ukrainian space, like Poland. And I've been to, been to Poland, and I've been to Ukraine, and all of that. So, one of the things that I've heard people saying in response to this war is, uh, is, is to pose this question, why are you rooting for Ukraine? 
don't you know how corrupt the Ukrainian government is? Don't you know how corrupt Ukraine is? They're, they're pro-Western, pro-secular, pro-leaning our way for a bunch of the wrong reasons. Uh, in other words, um, if someone says, uh, uh, this country in um, uh, Eastern Europe is yearning to be aligned with the West, well, it matters whether they want to be aligned with the West because they've been reading a lot of, they've been reading up on Jeffersonian democracy and, and they, they, they want to have ordered, uh, an ordered constitution, a written constitution, and, uh, and so on. That's, you know, one possibility. Or they could, um, they could want to be aligned with the West because they want lots of pornography and available abortions and, and that sort of thing. Uh, or they want access to, Western companies that will come in and bribe Ukrainians. Now, my friends in Ukraine are the sort of, uh, they're Christian people, and they are the ones who are, A, they would be able to tell you all about the corruptions of the Ukrainian government. That's not in dispute. They would, they would not dispute that. And at the same time, they are very much engaged in helping refugees and, and rooting for the Ukrainian war effort. And so the question is, how, how can you put these things together? How is it possible to, to bring the, these two things uh, together? And here's the answer. The answer is seen in Psalm 137. If, suppose someone uh, heard someone singing Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept, and they, they taunted us, sing us songs of Zion, and we refused. And someone comes up and says, you really shouldn't refuse that request, because after all, the government of Zion was hopelessly corrupt. Now, here's the question. Is that true? Well, yes, it's, it's absolutely true. Why, why was Israel in Babylon? Why were they in Babylon in the first place? Well, they were in Babylon because God deemed the government of uh, the southern kingdom of uh, Judah to be hopelessly corrupt. God judged them for their corruption. God judged them for their idolatry. And so the judgment that was visited on Judah for their corruption was a just and righteous and holy judgment. But here's the point. That does not erase patriotic affection, nor should it. So think of it, there there are different ways to think of this, but there was an early American naval hero named Stephen Decatur. Uh, in the early 19th century, at some event or other, he offered a toast, and the toast came down to uh, famously the phrase from it was "My country, right or wrong." Now, G.K. Chesterton once said, "This is sort of like offering a toast: my mother, drunk or sober." Um, <laughs> and actually, it is like that. But Stephen Decatur, to be fair to Decatur, his full toast was "My country, may she always be right." but my country, right or wrong. What he's doing is saying, I'm connected, and I can't, in an individualistic way, detach myself simply because I differed. Even if my, and even if my difference, even if the difference I held was grounded in the Word of God. Right, so, if Martians landed, if Martians landed in Kansas and started to fan out from there and, and tried to conquer America, I would be certainly engaged in the fight. I would be fighting to fight off the Martians. Now, if I did that, 
I'm not fighting to defend the corruptions in Washington, D.C., or in the various state capitals, which corruptions I acknowledge and oppose. But I'd still be fighting, right? One time, a Yankee, uh, during the war between the states, a Yankee asked a captured Confederate prisoner why he was fighting. And his, the answer was, because you're here, <laughs> right? Why are the Ukrainian, why are the godly Christian Ukrainians fighting the Russians? Because the Russians are there. <laughs> so it's not, like, um, it's not like the Russians invade and somebody says, everyone who supports the corruptions, um, you know, muster up. That's not how these things work. So individualism wants to say that I can put a bumper sticker on my car that says, don't blame me, I voted for so-and-so. But you can't, you can, you can have a bunch of people you refuse to vote for, you'd rather be dead in a ditch than vote for them, but they got elected anyway, or they got in power anyway, and if they take us into some costly, uh, some costly war or other, the fact that I disagree doesn't mean that I'm not at war. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a nation at war, and I've got to conduct myself accordingly. So, basically, this is just one—the the, Russian-Ukraine situation is complicated, and this is just one more complication. But don't—I uh, would say don't retreat into a simplistic white hats, black hats. Oh, um, Russia is ostensibly a nation of Christendom, and, and oh, the Ukrainian government is corrupt. Yeah, yeah, we know. I know. I know. I know. But that doesn't mean it's okay to do what Putin did. So, carrying on with Plodcast, episode 231, in our unrelenting study of the sins of the New Testament, a pursuit we are calling homartiology, we come now to a word that is sinful or not, depending on the context. We've touched, we t- we've touched on a few of those. There are words that express a sin directly, words like adultery, and there are words that, that could be talking about a sin depending. So, a, a word like leaving, <laughs> it would depend. What are you leaving? Are you leaving the truth? Are you leaving the straight and narrow path? That sort of thing. So, um, this word is hekousios, hekousios, and is translated by the authorized version as willfully, willfully. And this happens, as it happens, this word is used uh, one time. Also, if you've been tracking, um, tracking uh, with us over the weeks, I'm going through a Greek lexicon for these, these words, and we are in the epsilons. We're, we're, we're in the words that begin with uh, epsilon or an E, and this word is hekousios. Uh, this is not an exception. To that rule, it's a. It begins with an uh, epsilon with a rough breathing mark. So hekousios. And here's the here's the passage Hebrews Hebrews ten twenty six. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Okay. If we go on sinning willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now, of course, the thing that makes this willful sinning sinful is the fact that it is sinning willfully, <laughs> sinning willfully, right? But there is something about that word willfully that brings in an extra element of stubbornness into the equation. To say that Smith sinned and to say that Smith sinned willfully is not to say the same thing quite, right? To say that Smith sinned is, okay, that's X. To say that Smith sinned willfully 
is to say x squared. Now, what is this sin here? Sinning willfully, what is the sin uh, here in Hebrews being referred to? Well, in the book of Hebrews, the willful sinning was to go back to the blood of bulls and goats after having received the knowledge of the truth, that such sacrifices were no longer necessary. So the, the book of Hebrews is all about uh, how the, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ supplanted the need for repetitive sacrifices. So the gospel has come, the gospel has come, it's been preached, the recipients of this, this message have heard and have learned that Christ died as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Now, take that as the backdrop for Hebrews 10.26, for if we sin willfully by going back to the blood of bulls and goats, after we've received the knowledge of the truth that Christ died once for all, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins back in Jerusalem where you are attempting to go. So, it's not saying that you've committed the unforgivable sin. When it says there's, there's no more sacrifice for sins, it's not saying there's no more sacrifice for sins in Christ. It's saying there's no more sacrifice for sins in the blood of bulls and goats, which is what you're being tempted to do. So, those who went back to Jerusalem, where such sacrifices were offered, were not going to get cleansing for their sins. They, they were not going to get what they thought they were going to get. But all they were going to get is a fearful expectation of judgment. And this judgment, what was coming on Jerusalem in 70 AD, fire that would consume the enemies of God. Now, it's not talking about hellfire. So, remember that Jesus, Jesus predicted that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, not one stone left on another. He predicted that in approximately uh, 30 AD and uh, thereabouts. And he said that this is all going to happen within gen- one generation. When the book of Hebrews was written, which is probably the mid-60s, uh, that m- means it was just a few months away from the outbreak of the war there, and perhaps even after the outbreak of uh, the war had started. And so, and at this time, certain Christians were contemplating abandoning their faith in Christ and going back to Judaism. And they're standing on the dock about ready to get on the ship. And the book of Hebrews is written to persuade them to not get on the ship. Uh, because if you willfully go back to Jerusalem to offer the blood of bulls and goats, there's no, there's no cleansing for sin back there, only a fearful expectation of judgment brought by the Romans. So, there you go. Continuing on with episode 231 of the podcast, we come now to the book review. I'd like to review a small little book, which I, th- I thought was just a marvelous book. It's called The Lord Gave the Word. The Lord Gave the Word, and it's by a fellow named Watts. Lord Gave the Word by Watts, and it's published by the Trinitarian Bible Society. Now, what this book is all about, what this book uh, addresses, is the uh, issue of um, manuscripts and translations. There are, there are as many debates as there are translations, and probably even a few more debates than there are translations. But there's one fundamental debate when it comes to Bible translations, and that's the debate between uh, the advocates of the received text, the Byzantine text, and the advocates of the eclectic text, or the um, United Bible Society's text, the UBS text. And I'm just I'm flying over flying over this at 
30,000 feet. So I'm just going to touch on a, a couple of points. But I want to tell you that if you, if you want a primer, uh, of, uh, just a handy introduction to where we got our Bible, what the issues are underneath the Bible translation debate, and you want something written from the perspective that defends the Byzantine text type, then this is the book for you. It's the, uh, uh, in terms of being handy and accessible and readable and also pretty thorough, uh, this is actually the best I've seen. There are a number of you know, big, whacking great big books that, that go into the issues in depth. This is a small book, and yet it covers the waterfront pretty, pretty well. The Lord gave the word. So here's the, uh, here's the issue. Uh, the, and again, I'm painting with a broad brush. There are uh, two main codices that underlie the, what's called the Alexandrian uh, text family. Uh, and that's Codex Vaticanus. This was a uh, codex of the New Testament found in the Vatican Library. It's been in the Vatican Library forever. And uh, Codex Sinaiticus, which was uh, recovered from a monastery on, uh, on Mount Sinai, so in the Sinai Peninsula. So, which isn't, this is a separate subject, which is not where the real Mount Sinai was. I believe the real Mount Sinai was in Arabia, not in the Sinai Peninsula, but that would take us far afield. But uh, Codex Sinaiticus was found in a monastery there uh, in the 19th century. Modern translations like the ESV, the NIV, the Revised Standard Version, the NASB, are all dependent upon the Alexandrian text family. The, uh, the, the King James Version of the Bible and uh, the New King James and the uh, Geneva Bible, the modernized Geneva Bible, uh, are uh, based on what's called the Byzantine text type, the Byzantine text type. Now, the two earliest full copies of the New Testament, the two earliest are Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, right? And they are, roughly speaking, 4th century AD. And then about a century later, we start getting uh, many more examples of the Byzantine uh, text type all over the place. So, uh, what modern textual criticism has done is they say, well, these are, the, I think the NIV footnote says, the two earliest reliable manuscripts have this reading, you know, or they don't have this reading. They don't have the last 12 verses of Mark, for example, or the woman caught in adultery. What this uh, little booklet does is it walks through what resources do we actually have to determine what text family was in broad, wide use in, say, the second century. We don't have the autographs, right? We don't have the autographs of the Book of Romans or the autographs of the Book of Ephesians, meaning we don't have the, the copy that came straight from uh, the Apostle Paul. What we have are the opographs, which are copies. Okay, now, there are a number of things that that this um, author Watts points out that are quite, quite interesting, quite striking. The issue for, for copies, the issue is not how many years, the issue is how many generations of copies, for example. Let's say uh, you've got a manuscript from the dates from the 700s, and it was copied from a 200-year-old manuscript from the 500s, which was copied 
from a 200-year-old manuscript from the 300s. That's just three generations, as opposed to a copy that uh, from the 4th century that had 15 generations, 15 generations of copies. We don't know how many generations there were in these copies. So you, it, this is not a question, really, that science can answer. And uh, Watts does an admirable job of showing how we can identify what was in ro- widespread use from quotations for, from the early church fathers, from early translations like the Syriac, etc. So this is a good little book. If you're interested in this topic at all, and you're just starting out, and you're just trying to figure this out, then this would be a wonderful book to start with. The Lord Gave the Word by Watts. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Doug's page on Canon Plus. There you can listen to his audiobooks, watch his sermons, and more. Just click the link in the show notes and start listening today. Today.